Well, good morning, everyone. So good to have you with us. Come in and find a seat. We'll begin our worship service uh, in just a second. And while, I'm, while people are finding their seats, let me welcome all of you that are joining us online. We're glad to have you here. And I look around and I see some faces that I haven't seen since uh, October. So we welcome our summer uh, friends who are here now and guests. And we're glad that you're here. Speaking of summer friends, we have my favorite uh, cheerleader. Kim is, is here joining us, and Emma and Julie and two of her girls. And, of course, Mr. Old Faithful, also known as Mr. Incredible, Doug. So we are glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. We'll begin by reading some scripture. You know, I was raised in the evangelical tradition, and it seemed to me growing up that the most important thing that God wanted from us was to have correct theology. It, you know, what you believe determines what you do, I think is the, the idea. So uh, recently I did a little study to see exactly what the New Testament said about what God expected from us. And it turns out that correct theology is there, it's important, but by far the most things that the New Testament says God expects from us are actions. And the number one action by far is that we are to love one another, love others. The Good Samaritan is a good example of what that means. So the place where you see most of the verses about that is the book of 1 John. So I've prepared a little responsive scripture reading that we'll do now uh, from the book of 1 John, and I've titled this, What is Jesus' Heart or Desire for You? So I'll, let's all begin and uh, just follow the cues on the screen. So let's read together. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. Dear friends, I am not writing a new commandment for you, Rather, it is an old one that you have had from the very beginning. This old commandment to love one another is the same message that you've heard before. If we love our brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. So that's the word of the Lord. So we're going to sort of <laughs> brag on God now as we sing. We're going to stand and sing some songs that brag on God on who he is and what he does for us. Yeah, feel free to stand now.
And the first song is one that's well-loved by many in this congregation, Everywhere I Go. And it's become a tradition that I invite kids to come up and help lead us and sing that. So any, anybody, you can be an old kid if you want. Anybody that wants to come up on the platform and sing this song, come on up and join us. So let's praise the Lord together. Put a song of praise in the 
This morning, and this morning, I'm, when I preach, I'm going to preach on kind of the key verse of Paul saying, Paul encouraging us to live a life worthy of the gospel. And so, as I was kind of getting ready for that sermon this week, I was thinking about just all that that entails to live a life worthy of the gospel. And our hope in gathering together here this morning, as we we 
worship, as we sing, as we hear God's word, as we fellowship together, our hope in all of that is that it encourages you, it fuels you to go out from here into this coming week to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our life is all about living in response to what Christ has done for us. That's our hope this morning, that you'll leave here feeling equipped and energized to live a life worthy of the gospel. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. We are glad that you are here with us this morning. A couple of announcements to bring to your attention. One is that following our service, we're going to have our annual congregational meeting where we will vote on... uh, key leaders in the church and vote to approve our budget for the coming fiscal year, all that fun, exciting, wild stuff. But we'll also share just some of the things we have coming up and some of the goals we have for the church and give a few updates on things that are going on in the life of the church. So if you are here and want to hear more about that, we invite you. If you're a member here, we would strongly encourage you to be a part of that if you're at all able. If you are new or visiting and you're like to share anything with the church about yourself or like the church to get in contact with you, there's a connect card in the seat in front of you. We'd invite you to fill that out. You can drop those in the wooden boxes that are on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where you can place tithes and offerings if you want to contribute to what we're doing here as a church. One other announcement is that next Saturday, there's a concert over at um, the Rock Mission Center in Eagle River. Eric will be playing for that. Marcy, who many of you know, will be playing a part of that. And so that starts at 7, doors open at 6.30 next Saturday up in, at the Rock Mission Center in Eagle River. So if you're interested in that, I'm sure Eric can tell you more about that. Or you can It's a benefit. Did you mention that already? What's it's, that? It's a benefit concert. Oh, it's a benefit for concert. For The Rock. For The Rock. So um, admission is free, but I think they'll take, a, they'll take donations while they're there. Again, we're glad that you're here with us as we fix our hearts, fix our minds on what God has done for us in Christ and as we respond to that in worship. And so as we continue in this time of worship, would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you. We praise you for... this moment in time where we can pause from the busyness of life, we can set aside outside influences that fight for our attention. We can come together as your people here in this place. We can fix our minds and our hearts on you. We can sing in response to what you've done for us. We can worship you. We can fellowship together as your people. We can be encouraged as we fellowship together. We can be encouraged as we hear your word and are changed by the power of your spirit at work in us. Father, we thank you for this time. And above all, we thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus, that even though we didn't deserve it, you came and died for us on the cross, Jesus. You died to forgive our sins that we could experience eternal life with you. 
Father, we confess that we are still not perfect. We still sin. And we thank you and praise you for the fact that Jesus' death paid for all sins, past, present, and future. And that we can come before you boldly drawing close to the throne of grace this morning as we worship and as we pray and as we come to you in your word. Father, would we never cease to marvel at your greatness and all that you've done for us. And as we marvel at all that you've done for us in Christ, would it motivate us, would it fuel us to live lives that are indeed worthy of the gospel? Would we leave here, would we go out from this place desiring to see your gospel advance, desiring to see people come to know Jesus, desiring to see our own lives become more and more like Christ's life. Father, as you help us to grow to be like Christ, as you help us to reach others. Father, would all that takes place here this morning serve to bring you honor and glory and praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. So at this time in our service, we're going to watch a short video clip from the Chosen streaming TV series. And if you remember the last clip that we saw, which has been probably six or more weeks ago, it was when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. She, Jairus was a synagogue administrator in, in the way it's portrayed in the Chosen. And this scene that we're going to watch today was sandwiched in the middle of that when Jesus was going and remember the big crowd of people. A woman who had chronic bleeding wanted to be healed, and he, she just wanted to touch the edge of Jesus' garment. And the reason for that was that in the Old Testament law, a person that was bleeding would make other people ceremonial unclean. That doesn't mean they had sinned or there was any sin. It was just a ceremonial thing, and they had to go through a certain ritual and wait a certain amount of time. So she did not want to make Jesus' ceremonial unclean, but she wanted to be healed. So there's a little bit of backstory. She had run into Peter's wife and some of the disciples and had heard about Jesus. And so this clip will be of her encounter with Jesus. So let's watch it now. Simon's house. We need to get through. Stay here. A rabbi has a pressing matter ahead. Promise you to come back and see.
thread. One thread, just, just the edge, only a thread. You! I know you! Get away from him! Stop it, please! Rabbi Yusuf! Rabbi Yusuf! This woman bleeds. She is unclean. We removed her. Please, please, I, I promise I won't touch him. I, I just need oh, to... Woman, please, we can help you, but not now. Question. Who touched me? Master, the crowds are pressing in all around you like this, and you're asking who touched you? They all have. Someone touched me. I felt that power went out of me. touched me. Come forward, teacher. It was me. Just the fringe of your garment, only the edge, I promise. You are not unclean. Why my garment? I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't have asked. But if, if you touched me, it would make you ritually unclean according to the law. I was sick. I was sick for 12 years. I bled and, and, and no one could stop it. But but I believed if I could just touch a piece of your garment. <laughs> and I was right. <laughs> Who told you I could heal? A man from the pool. And <laughs> he was right. The blood is seized. My daughter. I'm no one's daughter anymore. Look up. Yes, you are. Daughter. It wasn't my piece of clothing that healed you. But it was instant. I felt it right away. I know. But it wasn't this. It was your faith. Teacher, she was bleeding so long. We can take her. She is clean. me today and I know my daughter I know it has been a fight for you for so long you must be 
exhausted. Go now in peace. Your faith has made you well. I wish I could stay here longer. But I have business to attend to. Someone else has faith like yours. But I'm so glad that we found each other. Let's sing together. You can stand or sit, whatever feels right to you. I come, I confess, bowing here I find my rest, and without you I fall apart, you're the one that guides my heart, Lord I need you. 
I always kind of find it amusing when, when someone has a name that kind of perfectly suits their occupation. Right? Like, like if you were an author and you were writing a novel about like a track and field athlete who went on to become the fastest person in the world, and you named him Usain Bolt, right? like, like your, your editor would tell you to, you got to change that name because that's too obvious of a name. And yet, the fastest man in the world really is named Usain Bolt. Right? It's the perfect name. In fact, there's a, there's a term for this phenomenon. That term is aptronym. When a person's name that is regarded as amusingly appropriate for their occupation. So another famous example of this is it's the poet William Wordsworth. Right? It just fits. But there's some maybe less famous examples that I find even more amusing, right? such as we have this BBC meteorologist, Sarah Blizzard, <laughs> or this firefighter, Les McBurney, <laughs> or this eye doctor, Ashley Seawright, <laughs> or this neurologist, the brain surgeon, Lord Brain. And finally, the builder, Paul Schwinghammer. <laughs> there are like there are so many of these. Like I could have put like twenty more on, and I like was tempted to, but I should probably get to to the point. But like it seems like these people like were were given these names at birth, and they now spent their life trying to live up to the name they were given through their occupation. Like if Ashley Seawright had become a neurologist and Lord, <clears throat> and Lord Brain had become an eye doctor, that would have just felt wrong, right? Like Ashley Seawright had to be the eye doctor. Like just, it would be a waste otherwise. Right? So all these people, they just did a, a great job living up to the name they were given. And living up to the name we've been given is what Paul calls each of us to do in in our passage from Philippians this morning. We're in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. We're going to start in verse 27. This is now our fourth week going through the book of Philippians. So before we jump into this passage, let me just kind of remind you a little bit about what we've seen so far in this book. Paul started out in chapter 1 kind of laying out his own situation, like kind of what was going on in his life. He told the Philippians how he was in jail, but how even though he was in jail, he was still rejoicing because Christ was being glorified and the gospel was advancing. Paul told the Philippians how for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. He talked about how he wants nothing more than to see Christ exalted, Christ glorified, even if it means death for him. Whether he lives or he dies, he wants to see Christ exalted and glorified. That's what matters most to him. And so that's where he finds himself in jail, waiting to find out whether he's going to live or die, but confident that either way, Christ will be exalted. And then at the end of the passage we looked at last week, we read the person on the screen. He said, convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. 
so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. And Paul uses those words to to transition this book away from himself, and now the focus is going to be on the Philippians. From here on out, this book is all about the Philippian Christians and their progress and their joy in the faith. And Paul's one-sentence summary of what it looks like to to make progress in the faith, to find joy in the faith, is found in verse 27. He writes this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul is saying that for those who have believe the gospel. They've been given a new identity. The most important thing about those who believe the gospel is not what earthly family they belong to. The most important thing about them is not what they do for a living. The most important thing about them is not where they live or what country they're from. The most important thing about those who have believed the gospel is that they are Christians. They belong to the family of God. So now Paul's calling them to to live worthy of that identity. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul expresses a similar idea at the end of his letter to the church in Ephesus when he writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, live a life worthy of of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What he's saying is that Christian, live up to your name. Live up to your identity. And the rest of our passage this morning, if Paul then expanding on what it means for the Christian to live up to their identity, to live worthy of the gospel. So we want to explore this morning. What does that mean to live worthy of the gospel? But before we get there, we need to note that the order is incredibly important. If you look very, back at the very beginning of this book, Paul addresses this letter to God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. In other words, Paul's writing this letter, writing these words to people who have already believed the gospel. They're already God's holy people in Christ. And so here's the important thing. Paul is not saying in this passage, he is not saying, here is how to make yourself worthy. He's not saying, here's how to be good enough to earn God's favor, to make yourself worthy of God's favor. He's not saying, Here's how to be good enough to earn the title Christian. Paul is saying here that through the gospel, through the good news about Jesus, you've already been accepted by God. You've already, by God's grace, been showered with God's favor. You've already been given a new identity. You're already Christian. So now, in light of what Christ has done, Now live a life that lives up to and is worthy of that name. 
But if you're here this morning, and you've never taken that first step and actually put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you've never come to the realization that you have sinned against God and that your sin separates you from God, if you've never trusted the only way for your relationship with God to be restored is through believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, if you've never trusted Jesus for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life, then, then nothing Paul said in the rest of this passage will do you any good. Living a moral life, living out what Paul says here, will not make you worthy of eternal life. It is those who have already been made worthy through Christ who are now called to live out what they already are. If you've never believed in Jesus, if you've never believed the gospel, before you do anything else, I just urge you to, to believe that. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. If you have questions about what that means, what that looks like, I'd love to talk to you more about it after the service. But if I feel like what you have believed the gospel, Paul's message to us this morning is this. If you believe the good news about Jesus, then live as a citizen of heaven through bold perseverance and humble deference. I just want to, breakfast this morning, rest of our time together, I just want to unpack that statement by walking through our passage together. Starting with this idea that living worthy of the gospel means living as a citizen of heaven. If you look at our passage, your first reaction might be to say, like, I don't see anything in here about living as a citizen of heaven. There's nothing about heaven or citizenship. Where do you get that from? If we look at verse 27, Paul writes this. And he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. But in Greek, that, that phrase that we translate, conduct, conduct yourself in a manner worthy, right, is all one verb. And that verb is And If you look at the beginning of that word, right, it's built on the Greek word polis, which means city. And the connotation there is that it has to do with citizenship responsibilities. Paul's saying, live as a citizen by using that word. And it's interesting that Paul uses that word here. Right? Because typically when he wants to talk about how we should act, he uses the verb walk. Walk out your faith. Walk in a way. That's the verb he used earlier in that verse from Ephesians we looked at. In fact, Paul only uses this word twice in all of his writings. It's a rare Greek word. So why does Paul use it here in this passage? And to answer that, we need to remember something about the city of Philippi. And that is that Philippi was a, a Roman colony, and the people were Roman citizens, despite the fact that they lived in what is modern-day Greece. They lived some 800 miles from Rome. 
They were granted the special privilege as Roman citizens. Many of them were, were retired Roman soldiers. There was like a retirement colony for Roman soldiers is why it had this status. And the people of Philippi were, were very patriotic. They were very proud of their Roman citizenship. So Paul's word choice here is a reminder to his reader, to the church in Philippi, that as Christians, the most important thing about them is not that they are citizens of Rome, but they are citizens of heaven. Paul makes this point even more explicitly later in, in chapter 3 when he says, But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. Paul wants the church of Philippi to know that it is far more important that they are citizens of heaven than it is that they are citizens of Rome. Paul is speaking to those who live in this deeply patriotic society. A society where they surely sometimes feel pressure to display their patriotism more than to display their allegiance to Christ. I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of familiar. Like, we live in a culture that is very much about displaying our patriotism, about being proud to be an American, about all these things. And there's nothing wrong about being proud of your country or being thankful for the country you live in or cheering for your country in the Olympics or the World Cup or whatever it may be. But, but Paul's point There will be times when allegiance to country and allegiance to Christ come into conflict. And when those times come, you must remember where your citizenship is first and foremost. Your ruler sits in the throne room of heaven, not in the Oval Office. Your Savior is the risen Christ, not a politician trying to resurrect a political career. You should feel more affinity to your your fellow citizens of heaven who live in far-flung countries than you feel towards members of your political party. Your deepest concern should be the advancement of the kingdom of God, not the advancement advancement of your preferred political platform. If you belong to Christ, if you have trusted in the gospel, Paul calls us to live worthy of that gospel. And living worthy of the gospel means remembering where your citizenship is. It means remembering where your hope lies. It means remembering who your king is. And it means that when your faith in Christ comes into conflict with the values of the government, which it will at times. It means standing firm with bold perseverance for the sake of Christ. Paul continues in verse 27. He says this, Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will 
be saved. And that by God. Ridifying granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Paul says, stand firm. Stand without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Paul says, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ to suffer for him. Paul knows that if the Philippians live out their calling, they live worthy of the gospel, they will face opposition. They will face persecution, and they will suffer. And for us, like the idea of suffering is like the ultimate bad thing. But look at that verse again. It has been granted to you to suffer for Christ. The New Living Translation puts it this way. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for Him. The privilege of suffering. I don't know about for you, but that attitude towards suffering is incredibly counterintuitive for me. To view it as a privilege. But it's a mindset that we see all throughout the New Testament. In Acts chapter 5, some of the apostles are arrested for talking about Jesus. And the apostles then are brought before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, we're told, had them flogged. And then ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So the apostles are flogged. And how do they respond? The next verse tells us the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Because they have been counted worthy of suffering for the name. They were flogged. They were beaten. And they go away rejoicing because they have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. And in Philippi, living as a a Roman citizen meant there was an expectation that you would acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. But for the Philippian Christians to live worthy of the gospel, to live as citizens of heaven, it meant that they could not in good conscience acknowledge that Caesar was Lord because Jesus was their one and only Lord. And so refusing to acknowledge Caesar would certainly lead to opposition and persecution and suffering. But Paul tells these Christians in Philippi that living lives worthy of the gospel means facing the opposition with bold perseverance. In last week's sermon, I talked about like, some, some statements that Paul makes in this book that can be hard to take literally. Right? That can be hard to believe he's being fully serious. Like, he makes statements like, like do, do everything without grumbling. Like, everything, right? Or Paul says, I've learned to be content in every circumstance. It's hard to believe that every circumstance Paul believes that. Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's hard to take Paul fully seriously. It seems so foreign to us. And here in this passage, he makes another one of those statements that it's hard to take him at his word when he says, don't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. 
I don't know about you, but I tend to fear those who oppose me. My attitude towards suffering is it's not to rejoice that I've been counted worthy. In fact, it's, it's hard for me to even know what my attitude towards suffering is because I spend so much time and energy trying to avoid suffering, I don't even know. I just said that read this this week. I was just struck. Like, there's any number of areas in my life where like, I know I fall short of what the Bible calls me to. But this kind of attitude towards suffering, this kind of fearlessness in the face of opposition, the place where I know I fall short. So I stand up here this morning and I'm acknowledging to you that I, I have as much or more need to grow in this area than, than any of you. I tell you, I don't have it all figured out. But it does seem that, especially if our culture keeps following trends that may seem to be on, persecution for faith in Christ will, will come for us whether we want it to or not. So if we're going to live faithfully as citizens of heaven, then it would behoove us to learn how to cultivate this attitude that Paul has here. This attitude where we can face persecution and opposition without fear. We can rejoice where we can be counted worthy to suffer. Even standing here saying that, Rejoice in suffering. Like it, even if it leaves my mouth, it just feels strange. It feels wrong to even say. Like suffering is a gift. And yet it's a consistent attitude of the biblical authors. So let me at least try to explain the best I can how I think Paul gets to that place where he can say, Rejoice in suffering. So for Paul, and his attitude towards suffering, his attitude of bold perseverance in the face of opposition, is rooted in what we looked at last week when Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or again, he said last week, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul is convinced that death is gain. It is better by far. That death means eternal joy in the presence of God. The worst thing that any opposition on earth can do is is kill him, which means that he gets to go and be with Christ. Paul has embodied the word of Jesus that he says in Matthew 10 when Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. For Paul, the advancement of the gospel, the the exaltation of Christ was far more important than whether he lived or died. And this attitude towards suffering and and death is so counterintuitive that it became a powerful witness for the early church. Seeing Christians face suffering and death with confidence helped convince the watching world that Christians really believe what they claim to believe. In the first 300 years of the church, it was nearly constantly opposed and faced persecution. And yet it grew and grew and grew because people saw Christians face persecution. 
and stand firm. Paul said in the passage we just read that not being afraid of opposition is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. The early church father, Tertullian, famously said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Meaning that Christians dying as martyrs, the church caused the church to grow. A willingness to suffer and even die for what you believe is a strong testament to the fact that you really believe it. We see the same thing happening in our world today. I showed this graph a couple weeks ago, but it's so interesting. I'll show it again. I want to explain it all here, but basically what it shows is that the further left you are, the more opposition you face as a Christian. The further up you are, the faster the church is growing in your country. What you see is this trend that where there's more opposition to Christianity by the government, the church is growing faster. Like suffering for Christ, boldly persevering, the fact that opposition is a way of advancing the gospel. It's a way in which we live worthy of the gospel of Christ. And if you're like, here this morning, if you're maybe up here on vacation, just looking for a, a feel-good, happy sermon. I'm sorry you didn't get that in this, right? But like I've preached through Philippians, this is what we say, right? But like, doesn't mean suffering is pleasant. Doesn't mean we should seek suffering for suffering's sake. But it does mean that. I, at least, need to reframe and refocus my thoughts around suffering, right? to not see it as the worst possible thing. But if we're going to face opposition, we're going to face persecution, we're going to face suffering from the outside world, the one thing we need is strong unity from those within, inside the church. And Paul addresses that as he continues in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1, he writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Value others above yourself. Don't look to your own interest, but look to the interest of others. That's a, a big call that Paul places on our lives here, but he said that if we are to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, it means living with humble deference. It seems, if you read through the book of Philippians, that there's some kind of conflict going on in the church in Philippi. 
And Paul then will again return again and again to these themes of, of unity and humility over and over again throughout the rest of this letter. But here, hit the point. The point is that the gospel, if we really believe the gospel, then it unites us. Our love of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in us should, should move us to put aside our own selfish desires to move us to look to the good of our fellow brothers and sisters. And above all, it should move us to look toward the advancement of the gospel above our own preferences. Matt Chandler, in the quote that's in the inside of your bulletin, he said this, Living a life worthy of the gospel does not mean pretending to be perfect. Instead, it means having the humility to think of others as better than ourselves. It means putting self-concern aside to work together, realizing that we are all still in process. Let us have the grace of God for each other that He gave us in the overlooking of sins and the outpouring of unmerited love. And together we can strive in the holiness imputed to us in Christ and promised to us in the age to come. If we have truly believed the God, we truly believe that we are sinful and yet Christ came for us. That should fuel us, it should motivate us to, to set aside our own self-interest. Show the grace of God to our fellow brothers and sisters. Sadly, over the years, there have been many churches, many bodies of Christ that have not put this into practice. Tom Rainer, who does a lot of work on church health, has, has a long blog post on his website where he compiles a list of the 25 silliest church fights he's ever seen churches get into. Here's just a few of them. One, there was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Second, there was a, a church argument and vote to decide if the clock in the worship center should be removed. There was a 45-minute heated argument over what type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. There was a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. There was a, a petition to have all church staff be clean-shaven. There were arguments over what type of green beans to serve at the church picnic. There was a major fight in one church because the youth borrowed a crock pot that hadn't been used in years. There was a, an argument over whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church picnic. There's another fight over whether said church picnic could be called potluck or had to be called pot blessing instead because we believe in the sovereignty of God and not luck, right? One church member was chastised because she brought a like, vanilla syrup thing to, to the coffee center because the vanilla syrup looked too much like a bottle of liquor. Some church members left a church because 
one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from another church member. There was a fight in the church over whether people should be allowed to wear black t-shirts during worship. Those are funny, but they're also tragic. They're funny because they're so silly. But they're tragic because they harm the gospel. They, they stand in the way of the kingdom advancing. When we fight over petty things, when we put our own self-interest above the interest of others, things go horribly awry. All those examples I just gave, they reveal Christians who had no interest in putting Paul's word in this passage into practice. And I'm thankful that in my time here, we haven't had any arguments as, as trivial or, or silly as those. And I hope and I expect that that will continue. And yet there's still a temptation, maybe not as obviously, but there's still a temptation in every one of us to seek our own self-interest, to put our own desire above others. Whether it's we have a certain program or a certain ministry that we really want to see go or it's like the other thing with the type of seating we have or the color of the walls or like it's easy to put self-interest above the interest of the church body. Those of you who come here regularly, you're obviously aware that like, we have two, two worship teams that lead very different types of music. And that's one of my favorite things about this church. Probably each of you here has a preference for one or the other. You don't have to say it out loud, but you probably have a preference. But like having those two distinct styles of worship is a picture of what Paul is talking about here in this passage. That our preference, my preference for what type of music we play doesn't trump the interest of my brother or sister next to me. My preference for what type of music we sing does not trump the importance of the gospel. We can set aside our preferences. We can look to the interests of others. We can worship God truly, even if it's not my preferred style of music. We can still worship. And that picture of unity that comes from uh, submitting to the preference of others from mutually looking to, uh, to the interest of each other is a beautiful picture of the gospel at work. So let us be people who continue to humbly defer to the interest of others, who don't insist on our own way, who do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Let's continue to be people who value others above ourselves, both in church life and in our daily life as we go and we interact with those around us. Our humility, our looking to the interests of others as a 
a powerful and appealing witness to the watching world. The ability to not insist on your own way is a beautiful gift to friends and neighbors and family members who don't know Jesus. It's a testimony that we trust in one who is greater than us. That we trust in one who we serve and we submit to because he is the one who values and interests matter above all else. And we look not to our own interest, but to the interest of others and ultimately to the interest of Christ. We provide a powerful witness to each other and to those around us. Let us be people who humbly defer, who submit to Christ, who look not to our own interest, but to the interest of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to gather. We thank you for your word to us this morning. Above all, we thank you for the gospel of Christ. We thank you that you've forgiven us of our sins through faith in Jesus. We thank you that it does not depend on our own effort, our own work to make ourselves worthy of you because we can never do that on our own. We praise you. We thank you that through the work of Christ we are already worthy. Father, I pray that as we go out from here, you would help us to live worthy of the gospel. You would help us to live up to the calling you've given us. You'd help us to be what you've already made us in Christ. Father, I pray that we would remember that we are citizens of heaven first. I pray that when persecution and suffering come, we would boldly persevere, that we would rejoice that we've been counted worthy to suffer with Christ. I pray you'd help us each grow in cultivating that mindset and that heart in ourselves. Father, I pray that we would humbly defer to one another. We would humbly submit. We would humbly leave our own self-interest behind us. We would be united together for the sake of your kingdom, the advancement of your gospel.
Father, help us to be and live worthy of the gospel. Form each of us more and more into the image of Christ day by day. Help us to look forward to the day when we are gathered together around your throne, glorifying you. And as we look forward to that day, would it give us the ability to boldly persevere in the face of all trial, all difficulty, all pain? We look forward to that coming day in hope. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a reminder. Following the service, you can head downstairs. There will be snacks and treats and coffee down there. We'll have a time of fellowship downstairs. And then 1040, we're going to gather back here. Start annual meeting. We encourage you to, to be here. So 1040, encourage you to be back in here. As you go, would you go living life that is worthy of the gospel? You are dismissed.
Watching